0: Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Hi, Sue. Hey, Andrew. I'm so glad we can have this time together. Today, we're gonna be talking about chapter nine of my book, It's Not About the Sex, Moving From Isolation to Intimacy After Sexual Addiction. And chapter nine is called Breaking Down the Walls. And it's a chapter that I came up with because I feel both personally and with lots of folks that I've seen, there's tons of walls that need to come down in order to be in the present tense with people, where we can feel intimate and authentic with people. And it's not an overnight process, but it's Really, about identifying the walls and then breaking them down respectfully and gradually. Mm
1: -hmm. So, the first sentence of chapter nine, which you have right here, says, Scratch the surface of a sex addict and you'll find a love avoidant. So, what does that mean?
0: Great question. What I have found both within myself and with others is that we could just stop at the word sex addict and not go any further but that would be missing the whole story. When we go underneath and look at the undercurrent of sex addiction, it's really about issues with love and issues with attachment. And so generally, somebody who's acting out sexually a lot, through that acting out, it's a wall of not really being with others, although it looks like they're physically trying to get with others. But instead, they're really avoiding love, they're avoiding intimacy, and they're avoiding attachment.
1: Okay, so they're kind of feeding off of that just for themselves. It's like a selfish type of thing. They're getting something out of it.
0: Sure. I mean, there's a selfishness with sex addiction for sure. I mean, like we talked about a few chapters ago and a few conversations ago, sex addiction is narcissistic by nature. In the sense that there's a lot of self-centeredness. It's almost like being in a bubble. And so in that selfishness, there's an impossibility to truly connect with another person on a real level.
1: So do you think ultimately they're trying to or they just haven't even realized that that's what's missing?
0: Initially, when somebody's in the midst of their compulsive sexual behavior, chances are they don't even know what they're missing. Right they're driven to try and make contact with others sexually most of the energy is actually going into the hunt because there's such an adrenaline rush that goes along with the hunt for sex but in actuality there's this irony because it looks like they're driven and ambitious in a way to get sexual contact but underneath it all There really is very little contact and and really a profound loneliness.
1: Yeah, I can tell. I can see that. So um, how would you describe intimacy? I noticed that you use that term, the three T's, trust, transparency, and time.
0: Right. So I, I always like when I can remember something easily, like with this three T's, trust, transparency, and time. And what I mean by that is really when we can build true trust, true trust, that's another T, <laughs> um, <laughs> when, when trust is established and usually it goes hand in hand with, with real respect. Okay. So that's an R, but trust and respect would go together. That, that of course takes time, Right. And it takes a willingness to really be emotionally transparent. In other words, to really show others what's happening on the inside. Now, of course, that's not an easy thing to do if you don't know exactly what's happening on the inside. But usually we're talking about folks who are not acting out sexually anymore and who are starting to realize that there's a lot of pain inside and are starting to wonder what's really going on inside and that's usually when someone will go to a 12 step program or will go to therapy or will go to a pastor or a coach or or somebody who understands sex addiction and can start to consider the idea that huh what if the healing in from this compulsive sexual behavior what if the healing actually lies in real relationships right mm-hmm. and so intimacy can be looked at in so many different ways i i heard a definition the other day that i really liked a lot which is emotional mutuality based on a mutual desire to grow together
1: yeah so you can't do that with a wall though i mean that's intimacy only happens after you break a wall down i would assume because otherwise how are you going to how are you going to have that mutual respect it's just not possible
0: the thing that's interesting about that as you say that what what comes to me is that sometimes people end up in relationships when there's a lot of invisible walls and i'm not just talking about the person with the history of problematic sexual behavior. I'm also talking about the partner of that person or the boyfriend or girlfriend of that person. And sometimes being together actually is the challenge because they're running up against walls all the time. So in order to really get close, in order to feel like there's something more loving, something more real between them sometimes they start kind of chiseling down each other's walls right so for instance let's say they go to couples therapy because they really care about each other but they don't know how to communicate chances are they've got a lot of walls up and so it can happen sometimes on one's own or it can happen with another person it just depends on situation. I don't think there's a, a one size fits all right. for that one. Yeah,
1: I would think that'd be more broad. Yeah. So you have a chart um, and it's about intimacy versus pseudo intimacy. So I'm interested to hear the differences of those. It's on page 145 if you are listening at home with a book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sue. A lot of folks confuse intimacy and pseudo intimacy. I want to start with that because pseudo intimacy can sometimes feel very seductive it can sometimes feel like something very exciting um something that seems to be better than than it actually is um but what i'll share is just a few ideas from the book that will distinguish between the two so authentic intimacy or whatever we want to call it, real intimacy is when someone begins with loving oneself. So being the person that you want and desire, right? So that's the self-love piece, actually, that Jan Bergstrom and I, and I were talking about on the last podcast. Another
1: course, yep.
0: A pseudo-intimacy example would be to, that we try to avoid being seen or um, or or seeing ourselves fully. And we always seek love from the other person, right? So there's an imbalance with the pseudo intimacy where we're really longing for the other person to validate us rather than having a sense of self-love. Intimacy. I love this one. I'm not sure how this comes across on a podcast, but for me, it's like an image. It grows very slowly like a tree. Right. So most trees begin like little seedlings and then they they grow very slowly. And on the other hand, pseudo intimacy grows really fast as if by magic, like, oh, my gosh, I just met the best person in the world. Right. After we had a 20 minute conversation at Starbucks. Right, that's an example where the projections are really big, the right. fantasy is fantasy, really big. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, but the real deal is something that happens slowly over time. Another example of intimacy would be creating a deeper sense of yourself the longer that you are together. So there's something about the chemistry between the two individuals that ha- actually helps create a, a stronger sense of self. And in pseudo intimacy, it's, it's the opposite, where it feels like you're creating a loss of self the longer you're together. So that's kind of like the codependent neglect that that some people have where they're giving so much to the relationship that they lose themselves.
1: So it sounds like time is of the essence for growing intimacy. But is it possible to be intimate or have intimacy with someone soon or into a relationship? but or is it something that is nurtured.
0: You know, I would say it's nurtured. I th- I think there can be some seeds that are intimate. I don't want to sound too black and white about it, but I do believe that it takes time that that intimacy doesn't just show up right away that although it's very romantic and I have my own hopeless romantic part of me that when it comes to love at first sight for instance it's not really love at first sight it's pseudo love right right it's that projection and that fantasy
1: so are you saying pseudo intimacy is a bad thing or it's just is it there in every relationship you think
0: again i don't think it's a bad thing per se i, I don't like to right go into good and bad although I, I know what you mean i think what it is is a warning sign and it's it's that opportunity to observe oneself rather than get lost in in the idea of love okay so one thing i just want to add is that oftentimes intimacy is about being satisfied with the partner that you have right imperfections and all pseudo intimacy oftentimes is about looking for more and looking for better. And so there's that idea that the grass is always greener somewhere else. And it goes on and on from there, but what I wanna summarize is that there's nothing wrong with pseudo intimacy or pseudo love per se, but but it's really a chance to slow down, observe, maybe get a reality check from others and know that unless there's time transparency and real trust and respect it hasn't quite grown into what i consider full intimacy
1: yeah there's a lot there
0: there's a lot and it it, for each of us it really is something that we can mine based Mm -hmm. on our blueprints of intimacy
1: right because you can carry intimate feelings from a previous relationship and ideas of what that is or was into another relationship but I think it's all dependent on your partner and where they are in their in their love avoidant or not, well, if they're open or not.
0: What's interesting about that piece is that I, I think that there's an opportunity not to carry what happened in your last relationship into your current relationship. And really the opportunity, in my opinion, is really about therapy. It's about using whatever healing modality fits for you and learning the themes and patterns of the past so that you can really know what those blind spots were so that they don't have to be transferred or taken. Right. Well,
1: I meant more like um, if you had a, a relationship that was very intimate and you understood what that felt like and how that worked, I think it's a nice thing to learn from too move forward in other relationships like you're talking about childhood traumas and stuff like that before where maybe intimacy was never really modeled or you knew but so you probably do come with some sort of baggage um either good or bad and hopefully you're learning from those like previous examples to you know get yourself in a more healthy relationship
0: well for instance we've known each other 35 years more or less and Our understanding of ourselves today, hopefully, is very different from what it was back then. And so our intimacy muscles have been growing. And intimacy, by the way, we can talk about romantic intimacy with a a significant other, or we can talk about intimacy in general in terms of being more transparent, more trusting, and more time. Because, for instance, you and I have a very particular kind of intimacy based on our history together and all of the years of knowing one another through thick and thin.
1: Right. And we just, we tolerate each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's another T for you. (laughs) And we
0: endure one another.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We do all those things. It's fun. All right. So um, we hear the terms love avoidance and um, love addiction. So quite often nowadays these are terms that Are flying around but what do they really mean
0: for this one sue i'm going to go ahead and share my own take on that from a personal level because i think that's the easiest way of describing it so because i grew up in a family where in a lot of ways it was emotionally unsafe there was a lot of chaos there was a lot of competition there was a lot of envy Emotionally, it wasn't easy to lean into love because I always say that we loved one another. We just had no clue how to love one another. And so from the get-go, I was love-avoidant. In other words, I would hold myself away from others. That was my wall. And I did the best I could, but in dating, especially through my 20s, I really didn't trust that I would be okay. I I felt scared, I felt overwhelmed, I felt like something bad was going to happen if I got too close. And so it was really a survival strategy for me to be love avoidant. Now, when I finally found someone who I fell for, I built a huge fantasy around this person. i He happened to be a casting director for a couple comedies back in the late 80s and lived a lifestyle that was pretty amazing for me because I had just moved to the West Coast and it was very glamorous and seemed very exciting to me and different. But what happened was I built this huge fantasy in such a way that I had no idea who he really was. He was about 10 years older than me. He was obviously very successful, very busy. Um, all all of the boxes got checked. But I was so underneath all of this. Let me go with that. I had such longings to feel some kind of of intimacy, some kind of um, a sense of being taken care of. Um, so it was kind of like a prince charming fantasy, or or the knight in shining armor fantasy, one or the other. And so that was an impossible love from the beginning. It was something where I just created something in my mind, and this wasn't intentional. This is just what my mind did, and it was like this fireworks in my brain. That I didn't understand and finally some really wonderfully wise friends of mine said you know this isn't healthy stuff this is pseudo intimacy this is I don't know if they use the word love addict but this is really something that's not for you we don't feel it's in your best interest and somehow I ended it and and moved on but the point is that We can have both the love addict and the love avoidant inside of us. It's not like it's one or the other. And all of this, by the way, is based in attachment patterns. And so my early attachment was very avoidant. And yet, underneath of it, I was starving for attention and validation and and love.
1: Well, do you think like through the avoidance, you actually created... What I picture is like a hole in your heart, or a hole that you were trying to fill, that was never ever filled from, you know, growing up in your parents and your family, but it transferred into you as an adult all of a sudden in a relationship situation where you just wanted that hole that in your heart to be filled, but it wasn't with the right. I guess the the health the most healthy way is your friends are easy and uh, to figure that out for you which you're lucky that they did right Um, so do you think that when we avoid something we actually create by avoiding something and pushing things away we actually create a need that is a being avoided
0: i I think they coexist yeah Yeah. I, i i think that image of the hole in the heart that brokenheartedness is is right on and i also think that we also, we all have deep needs, right? And whether it's the need to be seen or heard or understood or respected, all of those things that are sometimes wobbly as kids are then transferred onto someone who we wanted at just the right way and just the right time right. at just the right temperature.
1: Right. It's like I want it now. Like the little Shirley Temple. Like-
0: that's right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Little tantrum.
1: Little tantrum, yeah. That's what we have inside us. Mm-hmm. So, um, how does obsession fit in with love addiction? I see like addiction and obsession kind of fitting together um in, in this situation.
0: For me, obsession is really about something that's all consuming. Right. I'm not just talking about a passing thought it's when something is so difficult to get out of our mind that it becomes it comes a sole purpose of our day in a way I, I was just talking to somebody the other day um who has um created an obsession around someone who lives in a different country and who really would like something to happen like deep down has a a longing for some kind of connection there's nothing wrong with that but the obsession is when it becomes 24 7 and that's when the suffering begins
1: so like a stalking, or i mean in this day and age you can find out a lot of stuff on just your cell phone (laughs) about somebody else so is that like just always on their mind and just constantly looking. So how does that fit with love addiction exactly?
0: Well, because love addiction isn't really the addiction to love, love addiction is really being addicted to the fantasy of love. So again, the obsession, like you said, it could go as far as stalking where somebody is cyber stalking, looking at someone's Instagram all the time, Facebook, Twitter, whatever that may be. And, and then it, it just feeds the fantasy. You know, they start seeing pictures of where that person is on a daily basis. And, and it it just gets very desperate.
1: So that's where the fantasy fits into it. Um, but you can have fantasy without obsession, I'm assuming.
0: Well, I'll tell you about fantasy for for a moment. Fantasy in the sex addiction world sometimes gets a bad rap because sometimes there's fantasy that can be absolutely healthy, right? Somebody has a fantasy about a particular type of sex, for instance, and it's not something that's obsessive. It's not something that's causing consequences. It's not something that, that they can't stop. It's simply Maybe it could be a fetish. It could be something that is, they've always wanted to do sexually that they've never done. So that kind of sexual fantasy can be actually very healthy because it adds to the repertoire of somebody's sexual self, right? Their erotic template is being explored. But on the other hand, what often happens in 12-step program is people will talk about fantasizing to the point where they can't stop. That's often happens with uh, porn addiction, for instance, where it becomes like a quest in order to create a very particular kind of fantasy or a very particular kind of obsessive fantasy around any kind of sexual act that that may be obscure, for instance. So absolutely, they're, they're separate. Fantasy and obsession are separate. But when we're talking about fantasy, we want to be really careful about does it fall into a more compulsive category where it's problematic and is really getting in the way of somebody living their life the way they want to live it? Or is it something that's possibly enriching and can really make their sexual life or or maybe their romantic life more spicy?
1: So it sounds like there's a lot of boundaries that need to be set in lines almost to be drawn. And it's okay to have some things on both sides of it, but in different um, depths, I guess, or like you can have healthy fantasy and then you can have obsessed fantasy. And just knowing what the difference of it is is very important. I guess it's that mindfulness, again, of being conscious of what it is you're thinking and doing.
0: And, and again, I think when we're talking about boundaries, oftentimes it's good to run it by someone, right? Someone you really trust. It could be a therapist. It could be a sponsor. It could be a, a friend who you really feel open with and would like some sense of, of sorting things out with.
1: Right. How does it sound? And yeah. Right.
0: Like mm-hmm.
1: So I was told that couples therapy sometimes, or therapists sometimes talk about the pursuer distancer dynamic can you say a little bit more about that
0: i love this expression because it's so easy to understand in a couple oftentimes there's one person who's pursuing more and there's one person who's distancing more and that doesn't stay the same all the time sometimes the, the individuals flip roles but the pursuer could be someone who initiates sex more often or it could be the person who pursues more intimate conversations more often, or pursues more vacations more often, or whatever it is. Pursue Pursuer means leaning in, and it means wanting to articulate and invite the other person into some kind of experience, right? The distancer, on the other hand, is is kind of like the love avoidant, really. So the pursuer, and this is in loose terms, but the pursuer is is kind of like the love addict-ish person, but definitely the distancer is like the love avoidant, usually the one who's waiting and wants to be pursued and wants some distance. and And I want to also specify that there's not really a healthy or unhealthy nature to either of these roles. Mm -hmm. They're a natural part of every relationship. And what's more important is to, again, shine the light on these roles, shine the light on the the themes and patterns that the couple has, and then go from there and see Mm -hmm. if there's ways for them to work with this information so that they can negotiate and, and, create trade-offs and and mutual understandings around whatever issue they would like to focus on
1: yeah i mean the understanding piece is huge because it just opens up doors and breaks down walls right
0: (laughs) that's couldn't said couldn't have said it better sue that's for sure so
1: with everything in your book you seem to come back to connection as a healing force Um, What if someone is so profoundly isolated and just distrustful that they don't even rely on anyone?
0: Right. So what we're talking about is the anti-dependent personality or someone with anti-dependent traits. I know very well what this is about because growing up in my family, I was super self-sufficient and basically anti-dependent, meaning that I was afraid that if I got dependent upon someone, that something dangerous might happen. Not literally, but like emotionally dangerous. Right, right. It's a risk. Exactly. Right. So speaking from personal experience, the idea of going from profound loneliness and anti-dependency to connection is a very, very gradual one so in my own therapy i've had therapists who have been super patient with me and have given me what i call bids for contact again and again and again but what's so beautiful about a bid for contact is that i always had the opportunity to say yes no or maybe and so in other words i'll give you a specific idea my current therapist might say something like i notice that your your energy today is is lower than usual do you know what that's about because i'm 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 not used to seeing you this way and so that's a bid for contact he's really coming closer to me and acknowledging something that i may not even be aware of. It may be a very invisible wall, or, or it could be a veil, It doesn't even have to be a wall, but just something I'm behind. And so at that point, I might say, you know, I'm not going to answer that question, because I have no idea what you're talking about. Or I might say, let me give some thought to that. You know, I, yeah, I, I had this session today with with a client that really left me sad and I didn't really realize it and I could use some time to talk about it right so what that really means in nervous system terms is I get to regulate the distance or what we might say regulate the emotional distance and so I'm letting in this case my therapist know okay so I'm I'm willing to talk about it let's let's talk about it or no Maybe another time, or let me think about it. And I'll get back to you in ten minutes. But either way, there's something about the respect and the space and the room for me to approach when I'm ready to approach. and and to know that little by little by little by little, and it's glacial sometimes, I get to feel more attached and actually, more dependent on my therapist. Dependency gets a really bad rap. I'm talking about healthy dependency. I'm talking about this feeling that I can count on my therapist, that he's going to be consistent, that he's going to have boundaries, that he's never going to do something that's going to harm me. And, and that little by little, I can feel like this is a person that is totally in my corner.
1: So was that situation set up based on you discussing what your isolation issues were as a child?
0: It could be. It could be. I mean, I think because I've been in therapy with this therapist for many years, we don't generally have to go back to that because he already knows that. But sure, I mean, sometimes it's about revisiting that feeling of, huh, when I had a sad day, who did i talk to or what did i do with those feelings right and really what breaking down the walls is all about is knowing that connection can be safe knowing that i get to approach in whatever way i can slowly find my way to the connection and and that there's going to be an understanding that it it's Not always going to be easy territory for me, even to this day, that sometimes my emotions, my feeling of not being um, connected, right? Because I think love avoidance is about disconnection, but moving towards the relationship is is about that intimacy, um, really about love and attachment.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like it's a goal that you can set for yourself. And I'm not saying you personally, but um, that people can set for themselves to try to break down the walls and, and make those connections and how important they are to healing themselves.
0: For sure. And one thing I want to impress upon our audience today is that it doesn't have to be with a therapist, although I think therapy is such a fertile ground for this area of intimacy and love and attachment it can be with anybody who you feel is emotionally reliable for you someone who you know can be trusted with your heart really and that you've known for a while like 35 years sometimes and and that you can be emotionally transparent with you know that there can be that channel of safety to to just be fully ourselves
1: that's fantastic. So it's good to know. Find a nice friend out there. And if not, there's great therapists around.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, thanks, Andrew.
0: Well, thank you, Sue. I really appreciate so much, not only because I enjoy this topic, but because it really reflects our relationship and, and how much we've been a part of each other's lives.
1: Yeah, it's nice to uh, revisit it all.
0: For sure. <laughs> Today, Sue and I have been talking about Chapter 9 from my book, It's Not About the Sex. I so appreciate you listening to our podcast today. Please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or you can share our podcast on Spotify. And if there are any topics you'd like us to discuss in the future, please let us know. And I so look forward to you joining us on future podcasts, and thanks again for being with us today.